0: What we're going to talk about today is three trends in the health, wellness, and so-called peak performance space that really seem to be having a a field day in in our corner of the internet. And um, we want to try to bring to bear some nuance on these things.
1: Welcome to the Growth Equation podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, I hear I hear as we're recording this that you just got a PR. So, why don't you take a moment, pat yourself on the back and, you know, celebrate your athletic giftedness.
0: You know, it's another week and it's another PR. Um, They're going to have to start drug testing the growth equation because the gains are just happening too fast for reality. Uh, The truth is I recently switched from a high bar back squat to a low bar back squat, which probably means nothing to you and your running cronies, Steve. But the position of the bar is a little bit lower on the back, which for people with really poor ankle mobility like yours truly it changes the angles so that your ankles get out of the way. And for the first time in the last three years, I finally feel like I'm using like my muscles to squat and I'm not fighting against positions. So I think the PRs will probably continue for the next few weeks, to be honest, and then it will get very, very hard.
1: Brad, 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 you, you forget, man. Like my graduate degree is in this stuff. I had to take grad school classes literally on the biomechanics of, of, well, of strength training. So So. you know about a low-bar squat? Dude, I had to learn all of that. Have you ever low-bar squatted? Have I ever low-bar squatted?
0: No. Then you're no different than any of these other science podcasters that just live in theory.
1: That's not true, Brad. That's not true. It's, you know... I've seen it all. I've coached it all. We actually had to coach it up on different people. So just because I uh, am very skinny doesn't mean I didn't have to take all the strength stuff. Well, Um, Steve, I should just hire you to coach me. You know, you'd probably get too strong and then accused of uh, taking drugs.
0: Well, I don't think we're going to have to worry about that anytime soon. What else? What else? Macklemore has a new album. It's called Ben. It's phenomenal. Those of you that subscribe to our newsletter, you'll hear more about it in the newsletter this week. Or if you've already read the newsletter, because you're listening to this after Thursday, you'll hear more about it. Uh, If you aren't subscribed to our newsletter uh, and you like our podcast, then you absolutely ought to subscribe to our newsletter. So be sure to do that. It's always in the show notes. Um, Yeah, you know, Macklemore put out A new album, it's called Ben, and the front half of it is fun and funky and musically very interesting. And then the back half is just, God, does that guy know how to end an album? But it's a really provocative social critique on the attention economy, on superficial, shallow sources of dopamine and stimulus for status. It's really all the things we talk about on this podcast, uh, except with Macklemore's poetry behind it. So. I'm doing well, man. I'm just listening to that album and back squatting. Life is good.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, if you want to support Brad's lifestyle of listening to Macklemore and back squatting, you know how you do it. You buy our recent books, mine, Do Hard Things, his, The Practice of Groundedness, and then support us on Patreon, which you get all sorts of great stuff Be besides feeling good about supporting Brad and Really, you know, you Patreon subscribers are the reason Brad is PRing. It's not any of this other junk that he's talking about. It's you guys and gals who give him the ability to train. So if you want to see Brad PR some more, um, go to patreon.com backslash the growth equation and support the podcast. All
0: this other junk I'm talking about, I back I I thought you're Mr. Exercise Science. I back squat with a low bar. That's not junk. We're going to talk about junk on today's podcast, but I'm off the junk, man. Never was on it. So the junk we're going to talk about today is not performance-enhancing drugs. Steve spent 10 years talking about that, and if you want to learn more, just Google Steve Bagnus and Peds, and it'll all be there for you. What we're going to talk about today is three trends in the health, wellness, and so-called peak performance space that really seem to be having a, a field day in, in our corner of the internet. And um, we want to try to bring to bear some nuance on these things. So we are not just going to attack them. If you're thinking, oh, Brad and Steve are just going to go all elite performance and attack everything new, that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to truly evaluate these things. And I think what you're going to find is what we're going to say is, yeah, there's maybe a time and a place for all of these approaches, but that time and a place is very specific. It's not universal and there's no magic bullet. So the things that we're going to treat today, at least as an inroads to perhaps some broader commentary on the the trends in health and performance right now, are cold plunges eliminating coffee, and cutting out alcohol. So let's start with cold plunges. So Steve, I am going to tee up the context for this trend. I'm going to mention a little bit about the science and then I'm going to turn it over to you because I know that this is an area that you've read more research papers than I've probably read on anything. So My layperson's understanding is as follows. Cold plunges are all the hype. Whether it's Sahil Bloom diving in one, former guest on our podcast a couple episodes back, Andrew Huberman, every third episode is about a cold plunge and or sponsored by a cold plunge. I mean, pretty much anyone and everyone that has some sort of internet platform in the health, performance, and wellness space with the exception of Steve and I and a few others out there are really into this idea of immersing yourself in freezing cold water for a period of time. And somehow this is supposed to be like the ultimate thing that we can do for our health right now. And I don't want to build up a straw man because some people like Andrew Huberman will say it doesn't replace exercise. It doesn't replace all these other things yet. It's still really important. And he still talks about it a lot, right? These are just facts. So, I want to start with the paper that everybody used to cite, which is a paper I do know a lot about. And then I'm going to turn it over to Steve to talk about a new one. So the paper that everyone used to cite is a study by Susanna Soberg. And it was a really good, clever study. But that doesn't mean that its conclusions support cold plunging. So you can have a really good, clever study design and have a finding that isn't provocative. So Let's start with what's not great about the study. It had a sample size of 15, which is a very small sample size. The sample size were Norwegian swimmers, not a specific population. The other problem with the study, before I get into what made it clever, was that, you know, actually, I'm just going to be honest here. There's not much that's clever about it. I'm kind of hedging because, like, I don't want to feel like I'm on the attack is an interesting idea to do this, but the the study design, I'm going to bite my tongue here and self-correct. Like as I go through this, it's not a great study design. So the control group had 50% greater body fat than the experimental group. So you've got a sample size of 15 of a specific population and you've got a control group that is poorly matched to the experimental group for the variable that you are measuring, which is what cold water immersion does to metabolism. What the study found is that over 24 hours the group that did the freezing cold water plunge burned about 500 more calories than the group that did the normal water cold plunge. Now, what's interesting is when you actually look at the data, the amount of calories more of it they burned was about 50%, which is exactly the difference in lean body mass between the two groups, A. and B, that number was cleverly reported over 24 hours. So when you divide... 500 by 24, let's do by 25, four goes into 100, we're talking about 20 calories an hour is the difference, right? And they only measured it for a half an hour period. And we know that that effect, like after exercising, doesn't last all day. So what we're talking about here is burning an extra 10 calories. And that was the study that everybody cited for cold plunges. Now, People shifted as folks like yours truly and Steve started to kind of blow the horn that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be making rash claims about cold plunge and its benefits for metabolic health based on this study. And then everybody started saying, well, what about brown fat? You know, there was a mechanism in the study that showed that it increases brown fat. And what Steve pointed out in the past is that We don't really know much about brown fat in the real world. Theoretically, it's really healthy to have more brown fat, but a lot of the best athletes in the world have very low levels of brown fat, and they live a long time. And then one more thing, Steve, before I turn it over, that's just the physiological stuff. On the psychological side, well, it increases dopamine in the bloodstream by 250% or whatever the right number is. I don't actually know. It gives you a rush of energy. It helps you build discipline to do something hard every single day. I'm not going to argue with any of that. That's all true. But you know what else increases dopamine? A brisk walk, deadlifting, playing pickup basketball, dancing, gardening, doing yoga, going shopping, playing video games. All sorts of things increase dopamine. And the point isn't that cold plunges are bad, but they're being kind of espoused as like this this pinnacle of health and performance. And if you're not doing a cold plunge, you're falling behind or you're not serious about peak performance, or you're not living on the cutting edge, when in reality, cold plunges are just like any other hobby. If you like doing a hobby, you should do it. And if you don't, you probably shouldn't. So it's no different than if a bunch of people that did woodwork started posting Instagram reels of their finished tables and chairs saying, bro, I started woodworking and you know now my life is great. And if you don't woodwork, you should really be woodworking. And then their Instagram is sponsored by the knife and saw that they use. So that's my, that's my kind of um, high-level rant. So Steve, I'm going to let you comment here.
1: Oh, thanks for setting the stage. All right, Brad ranting. And Normally- first, is there anything I'm wrong on? Because this is important before you get into your take. Uh- no, 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 that not, not anything that you said, nothing, nothing you said is wrong so let's 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 dive into this a little bit because I think it's important. People want data, science, all that stuff to back this up. Um, I want to start with the brown fat that you mentioned, and you mentioned this, but if you look at the studies on athletes in general, they generally have lower levels of brown fat than regular people. Now, percentage-wise, so it's not just like, oh, they have lower levels of brown fat because they're leaner, what have you, but in terms of uh, their kind of body fat makeup, it's lower level. If we look at some of the research on the training effect, again, it's very, um, there's not a ton out there. It's very kind of new and novel. But if you look at the research, most of the research at this point shows that endurance training reduces the activation of brown fat. Okay, so w- what I mean here is like we get these things that are hyped. With brown fat, it came a couple years ago. We said, oh, this might be a solution to uh, the obesity thing because essentially when brown fat is more active, so you burn more calories when you have brown fat. So this might be a, a solution. If we can get people to have more brown fat, they'll burn more calories, their basal metabolic rate will go up, and it'll help with the obesity epidemic. Unfortunately, the kind of mechanism physiological stuff on you know the theory translating to the actual practice isn't that simple. So what we've realized is that the 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 story that we were telling around brown fat is much more complicated and not straightforward. Okay, so that's that's number 1. I want to set sit there. If people say brown fat, great, but realize that yeah, it's a lot more mixed and nuanced than we often kind of simplify it to. The other point that I really want to drive home is that you mentioned you know, this 250% increase in in uh, in, in hormones. Dopamine, think- Steve, ner- the
0: neurotransmitter. I don't know what's going on hormonally. I'm sure that there's also claims about it reducing cortisol, which may be true. But the main claim I've seen is it's an increase in the neurotransmitter dopamine.
1: Yeah, so dopamine and the other thing, the other one that is really um, talked about as well is norepinephrine. which is- Yep, the hormone. Yep. So what we have here, which is really important, to understand, is that as you pointed out, lots of things cause those to go up. Okay? And if you look at, okay, you know, often the claim is, all right. you know, we get this boost in dopamine, we get this boost in adrenaline, or norepinephrine, we often use them interchangeably, noradrenaline and adrenaline, but we're going to stick with adrenaline to keep it simple in lay terms. Um, if you look at exercise generally increases it significantly more and for a longer sustained effect. Now that doesn't mean that we we push off cold plunges and say, "Oh, look, exercise works better and so do these other things for increasing these things." All this is is essentially a I'll call it a positive stress response. Okay? Negative, so-called negative stress response would be more cortisol-dominated because it lingers and can make us feel kind of anxious if it doesn't go away. Generally, when you have a, a decent amount of adrenaline and dopamine, you get excited and motivated, okay? Now, jumping an ice plunge can do that. And I think that's where the majority of the so-called like psychological benefit from it comes from is that people jump in it they get a little adrenaline they get a little dopamine they feel excited and motivated and you know they it makes them feel good so they keep doing it there's a couple things uh, that I just want to point out is that as you said Brad lots of things do that and then b like anything we adapt to that so the first time you jump into an ice plunge you're not going to get the or you'll get a nice boost The 50th time you do the same thing, your body is going to adapt. The adrenaline, neurochemical, hormonal impact is going to change. So you even, and there's actually research on this, you either have to go colder or like change the stimulus a little bit or detrain and forget about it and go back. So I think this is, again, another nuanced piece that we forget about here that It's not doing this for life if you want to use this. It's that the effect is going to change. The stimulus you're going to adapt to. So even if you think it's great now, like it's not going to have the same effect a week or a couple weeks, a couple months from now. So I like to see it as, as tools that can be used for a specific reason. But if you're just jumping into an ice bath, or a cold taking cold plunge just because like it looks good online, or you heard someone say that it increases dopamine by 250%, that really doesn't mean much and can you know have some detrimental effects over the long haul. All
0: right. I think there's two other little nuanced things to point out. One is a subpopulation that is sometimes talked about where cold plunges might make sense, again, for a period of time, are individuals that are attempting to recover from substance use disorders and addictions. And why is that? Because perhaps the rush that you get in the hyperventilation response when you're in a cold plunge gives you some sort of uh, reminiscent feeling of the high that you might get when you do coke or meth or heroin or whatever the addiction may be. Now, to Steve's point, eventually you're going to adapt to that cold plunge and it's no different than drugs. Like You kind of have to chase the next high. So it's not per se, a long-term thing, but is a part of a toolkit in addiction recovery, in therapy, in medication, and exercise, there could be a role for cold plunge. Anecdotally, some addiction psychiatrists have reported that it has been a helpful tool in the toolkit. So that's a time when you might use it. Then the other time you might use it, I posted this on the internet and a lot of people said, well, what about recovery from sports? And again, it's nuanced. So what the research shows is that for most people, not all, but for most people, cold water immersion reduces soreness, muscle soreness, and it might reduce some markers of muscle breakdown in the body. However, research also shows that anything that you do to mess with the body's natural inflammatory process tends to shunt adaptation to exercise. So you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, You take a cold plunge, you feel less sore, but you're not going to adapt to the training. So when might a cold plunge make sense? If you're an NBA basketball player on a road trip and you've got back-to-back games, or maybe even perhaps the whole season, your goal isn't to gain fitness. Your goal is to feel as fresh as possible to play in NBA basketball games. Ice baths make sense. An NFL player in the season, again, your goal is to feel fresh. Perhaps ice baths make sense. But if you're Brad, Steve, Zach, Kyle, Rachel, Marissa, Allie, it just wants to be healthy and train. Ice baths almost never make sense for training. Because if you're getting so sore that you can't recover, the fix isn't an ice bath. The fix is your programming's messed up. And then, of course, the last thing, I'd be remiss if I don't say it because it will occur or show up in the comments to the show, there is an exception for acute injury. If you sprain your ankle, if you're in a car crash, and the inflammatory response is out of control, then generally most sports medicine doctors, and, and I've talked to them about this very topic, will say that it can be very helpful to get that inflammatory process under control. So, now, if it's not completely out of control, then there's a strong case to be made that you actually kind of want to leave it alone and let your body do what it does. We see this research in NSAIDs in Motrin and Advil used to be, oh, take Motrin and Advil, don't be sore, wipe out the inflammation. Now there's a little nuance. If you have an acute ankle break and there's tons of swelling and you're at risk for compartment syndrome, yes, you want to do everything possible to get that swelling down. But if you roll your ankle, it's debatable. Again, if you're Steph Curry and you need to play the next night, yes, you get that swelling down. But if you're Brad or Steve, maybe you just let it be. So the point is that there's a lot of nuance and and we're talking about very particular applications for very particular people, which is so different than the 5am clip on Twitter or Instagram of someone jumping in a cold plunge is the key to the good life.
1: Yeah. The only, uh, and I'm glad you added that caveat because initially you said sprained ankle, blah, blah, blah. But there's some research that sprained ankle isn't one of those unless it's really sprained, right? Or you need to get back in the game immediately, like quick. Um, that it, icing a sprained ankle can delay the recovery process. But I, I think what you're getting at, and we've known this, gosh, I remember having this debate way back in undergrad. So we've known this for like 15 years, that um, when we block or dampen those inflammatory signals, essentially those signals are the what the body uses to understand how to adapt. So if we take away all those inflammatory markers, it goes, ah, never mind, we're okay. We don't have to repair this muscle. Like, forget it. Don't send resources to repair. So the point on all of this is it's really nuanced. And I think this is often the, where we we miss the boat on this stuff. And this is what I would say is if you're considering or you do jump in an ice bath or take a, a a cold plunge is be very deliberate and, intent, and intentional. And I used to tell my athletes too, so this is how I handled it from athletic standpoint, you know, training at a high level is with ice bath, I would say for a recovery standpoint, we're gonna periodize it, meaning like when we really want adaptation, we're gonna minimize them to the best that we can because like I want that guide of how hard you should train to kind of be your body dictating adapting when we get in the middle of the season or the championship season, and like we're not worried about you know, adapting as much because we've built the fitness and all we have to do is recover for, you know, get feeling really good for whatever races, then if an ice bath makes you feel better, take it. If you don't think you need it and they don't make you feel better, don't take it. So that's the kind of nuance we hope that you take out of this conversation um, on ice baths. It's not our cold plunges. It's not that they're the devil. It's that we just need some nuance and intentionality behind it instead of just doing it for the gram.
0: In theory is not practice. So remember that theoretically, as Steve pointed out, brown fat makes a lot of sense, but in practice and now this has been studied for 10-15 years, it just doesn't work. The body's complex, there's a million mechanisms. It reminds me of when I was in high school, you know, people would like drink ice water because of the thermogenesis in the cooling warming response in your body and people said you would burn calories and be leaner if you drink ice water in theory it makes sense but in practice nothing happens same thing with cryotherapy all this bullshit now the other thing about um cold punches and where i see this not from an athletic standpoint but just from a, a person wanting to perform well standpoint is i'll have people come to me and report being like tired and unhappy and kind of lonely and then they get into their day and it always starts at 5:30 a.m. with a cold plunge. And you dig a little bit deeper and what you're finding is that they're sacrificing sleep. They don't actually want to be doing the cold plunge. They're giving up other things because it takes a lot of willpower for them to do the cold plunge. And when you ask them why they're doing it, they're doing it for all these reasons that purport to make them happy and energized, yet they're feeling unhappy, lonely, and not energized. And generally, these are the same people that come hell or high water and need to stare at the sun for 15 minutes every morning. Or they need to make sure that their recovery score on their aura or their whoop makes sense. So when these tools get peddled as if they're so important, the real world implications that people start setting their life up around these tools, even though these tools have very limited and nuanced applications. So whether it's Steve periodizing recovery or a founder or executive or attorney or writer or whatever it is, physician, who already has a fair amount of life stress saying, you know, I'd rather just sleep and stay warm in the morning. That's probably often the right choice. Okay, moving on. The next two I think are a little bit easier because there's less nuance. Coffee. I saw this bro say, I'm cold plunging so often that I'm not even going to need coffee. I'll finally be able to cut out coffee. Come on, man. Give me a break. So here's what we know about coffee. This has been studied up the wazoo. If you have hypertension, science speak for high blood pressure, and or other high risk factors for cardiovascular events... Heart attack, stroke, then you should talk to your doctor before drinking a ton of coffee. If you are an otherwise healthy person, oh wait, one more, because it is nuanced. If you are using coffee to mask poor sleep. So if you're only sleeping four or five hours a night, you're not focusing on trying to sleep more, and you get through the day because you drink eight glasses of coffee, it's probably not very healthy either. You want to fix the underlying problem. What's going on with your sleep? If you Otherwise, you are a healthy person, you are sleeping okay, coffee is perhaps the best legal ergogenic aid that we have. It enhances athletic performance caffeine, it enhances cognitive performance and focus. It also is associated with an increased longevity, so all-cause mortality goes down in coffee drinkers, and a particularly potent decrease in the risk of neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's as well as heptapic problems, which are liver problems. Now, what's fascinating about these studies are they often look at people who drink like five or six glasses of coffee a day, which I'd feel really wired and anxious if I did. So I'm not drinking coffee to get those benefits. I don't think very many people are, but they are certainly not negative for you. Now, one more piece of nuance here. In the comment section on this thread, someone said, well, coffee is really bad for my anxiety. And I get that. And listen, if you run anxious and coffee makes you feel like shit because it makes you feel jittery and you don't drink coffee and your life is great, of course you shouldn't drink coffee. That's a no-brainer. However, if you experience generalized anxiety or another anxiety disorder and it's beyond coffee, do you know, Steve, what one of the best exposures is used by very skilled therapists to treat anxiety? They have people come to a therapy session on an empty stomach and take shots of espresso. Why? Because those people have a panic attack, they get anxious, they feel all the physiological symptoms of anxiety, and they learn that they're not going to die. So even there, there's some nuance, but coffee is certainly not something worth eliminating.
1: Yeah, so the only nuance there I'd give, and I'm going to give this from an athletic standpoint, and uh, and our knowledge on this has changed over the years, but like I mentioned with the um, the cold plunge is there is an adaptation effect. So if you drink coffee all the time every day, like your your the impact, especially on athletic performance, will shift a little bit versus if you had none and then took it. now the good news is this is that recent research shows that that adaptation effect is a little is less than we Used to think in terms of performance. So it's not like we used to think you had to abstain for a while to kind of get back down to normal and then take your caffeine and then you get the boost. But in, in some recent re- research, they found that abstaining from coffee, even for just, you know, 24 to 48 hours before a race or performance, was enough to kind of get back to maximize the performance enhancing benefit of having coffee. So all I would say there is, you know, if athletic performance is the thing you're maximizing, then you know, abstain a little bit before you're about to get the biggest bang for your buck for uh, taking the coffee before you're about to perform.
0: Yep, that'll make sense. And you know, something else I didn't mention, common sense is uncommon, so I'm gonna mention it. Caffeine does have a fairly long half-life, so if you struggle with sleep and you're drinking coffee in the afternoon, probably makes sense to try not to drink coffee in the afternoon. However, got a coaching client, Omid. He drinks espresso after dinner. He sleeps like a baby. Works for him. He grew up in a family, Turkish influence, I'm sure. They drink a lot of espresso. So it certainly doesn't make you healthier or morally more superior to, to not drink coffee. If anything, drinking coffee can be really useful for performance And so far fair amount of data shows it's actually pretty good
1: for your health. You know, so I'm going to add some some science to this because this was recently studied. Um, There was a study by uh, Carissa Gardner um, who looked at coffee impacting sleep. And I'll give this. The cutoff time to when it started to impact sleep if you had a 10 o'clock bedtime was just before 2 p.m. for a normal coffee. Now, if you had, these were, this was studying athletic population, and this was why it was interesting. If you took like one of those pre-workout supplements, which is like coffee through the wazoo, you know, I don't know the milligram exactly, but several cups of coffee equivalent, the cutoff time for impacting sleep was something like 9.30, 9.45 a.m. So that's only interesting because it's the same bros
0: that are morally superior by
1: cutting out coffee that
0: I'll take their pre-workout before their evening workouts. <laughs> <sighs> Didn't say we're not working to judge. I said we weren't going to judge coffee, but some of the kabuki on the Internet is um, is worth is worth calling out here. You know, it's interesting, though, because like, I don't know, I drink coffee at 4 p.m. every day and I go to bed by 10 and I have no problem falling asleep and my sleep quality, as far as I know, is pretty good. So I think, again, there's like that individual variability. But the fact that coffee is getting spun is like you should abstain from it. it. To me, it's just nonsense. And people will say, well, what about being dependent on coffee? And we do know that people that drink coffee for a long period of time have withdrawal effects. Like if I suddenly stopped drinking coffee, I'd probably be constipated and have a headache. And that would probably last a week at most. How do we know this? Because millions of women every year stop drinking coffee when they become pregnant. They have headaches, they have constipation for about a week, and very few of them are going through clinical withdrawal beyond that. Hundreds of thousands of athletes stop drinking caffeine on a dime for the reasons that Steve said. They feel cruddy for you for a few days, and then they're fine. So we're not here to sell coffee. I know Steve hardly drinks any coffee. I think the ritual of making coffee is every bit as important as the coffee itself. So use tea, whatever. We're just here to say that it's not bad for you. Okay, the last one that we said that we were going to talk about today is this notion of uh, sobriety in, in cutting out alcohol. And here's one where my guess is we're just gonna piss everyone off. So let's start with the data on alcohol, and I'm gonna put on my public health hat, which is my actual background. So from a public health perspective, exercise is one of the leading causes of health and fitness and function, and alcohol is one of the leading causes of disease and dysfunction. It follows very shortly after tobacco. More people experience alcohol-related decline in any given year than opioid-related decline. So alcohol is not good, and it's socially acceptable in a huge part of society. A study from the end of last year, brand new, huge meta-analysis, over 700,000 people included in the United States looked at deaths between 2015 and 2019. So 700,000 deaths. Here's what they found. One in every eight deaths in people aged 20 to 64 resulted from alcohol. Narrow that range to 20 to 49. Our age, Steve, one in every five people that died between 20 and 49, it was from alcohol. This included accidents and trauma, which is a part of drinking alcohol, drunk driving, But it also included liver disease, pancreatitis, liver poisoning, different types of cancer, all sorts of bad things. So at this point, it's pretty hard to argue that having more than one drink a day is healthy and it might actually be lethal. Now, it's worth pointing out, there's a theoretical hypothesis So actually, I'm going to give him credit. My brother, Eric, who's a neurologist and also a graduate in public health, has posited that, well, for some people, the stress reduction benefits of alcohol might outweigh the cost. And of course, the answer isn't to drink alcohol. It's to find other healthy ways to de-stress. So if you're listening, Eric, lay off the booze. All right. At one drink or less per day, the evidence is mixed. Some longitudinal studies looking at overall all-cause mortality and longevity, Dan Buettner popularized the so-called blue zones. They found that a lot of people that live to be 90, 100, 100 plus, they tend to have a drink of wine every day. So what we think is going on here is that the social benefits of coming together and enjoying wine, maybe some of those stress-reducing benefits, maybe some vascular benefits, although that science is kind of old, they might have some benefit. However, an area where the podcaster Andrew Huberman I think has been really good is that if your goal is to be really dialed in, to think as clearly as possible, to react as fast as possible, to feel as good as possible, less alcohol is always more all the way down to zero. So if you're a pro athlete that wants to crush your competitive season, is one beer going to throw you off? Probably not. But if you really want it to be perfect, then yeah, you wouldn't have any alcohol. But alcohol is a huge part of the culture. So people like going to breweries. People like drinking beer. Now, you could argue and say the culture is all fucked up and people shouldn't and they should find other ways to be happy. Okay, that's a fine take. But as far as we know, there is nothing wrong with occasionally drinking so long as you don't get drunk because getting drunk is not healthy and increased chances of accidents. And B... The most important thing is you have no problem stopping. If you struggle to stop at a drink or two, if you suddenly want to go out with the guys every night or the gals and have three drinks, then it becomes very problematic very quickly. It's one of the hardest things about alcoholism. I've done tons of reporting on people who experience alcoholism is that it's socially acceptable, even though it's killing them. So where does that leave us? If you don't drink at all and you're happy, wonderful. If you don't drink at all and you're unhappy, probably don't start drinking. Probably look to find happiness elsewhere. If you drink and you regularly have more than one drink a day and or you use alcohol as a crutch for thoughts that you don't want to have, for feelings that you don't want to experience, it probably makes sense to get some help so that you don't have to rely on alcohol for that. If, however you go out to the brewery once or twice a week, maybe even just a few times a month, you have a beer with your friends after a hard day training, you go to happy hour and you have no problem stopping after one drink and you're not craving it immediately again the next day. It's probably totally fine to continue to do that. So I'm sure I pissed off all the abstinent sobriety people. No, being sober doesn't make you morally superior. On the flip side, I probably pissed off All the people that live in Asheville that like to go to New Belgium and get three beers, guys, gals, it's probably not so healthy. Um, That's just what the science says on alcohol. It's a huge public health problem. And yet when I was in public health school, where did we meet with the professors and other graduate students to talk about our, our papers and studies? We'd meet at Ashley's, which was a bar. So it is such a big part of the culture. And I think that being all or nothing can be dangerous for people that, again, that have a, a way of having a healthy relationship with this substance. Um, but I want to be careful because a lot of people don't. And for those people, it, it sucks that alcohol is so publicly acceptable. And, and they are every right to, to feel angry
1: about that. All right. Um, I don't have much to add, except I think it's just nuanced and, you know, what works for you? I mean, I didn't for a long time during my running career, I never drank alcohol because I was like a well, if this is gonna hurt my running to a degree and I'm trying to optimize it, like I'm just gonna not gonna do that. And I did that for a lot of things. I didn't, you know, eat McDonald's or, you know, Taco Bell or any of that for years and years and years and years because it was, you know, that's what I cared about. So if that's you, great. Awesome, go for it. If you for reasons Brad mentioned, like want to go hang out with friends and drink a beer or two, great. Like, fantastic. But understand the drawbacks there a little bit. And this is actually where I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go out of lun here and say this is where I think some of the wearable tech has actually helped some people where they've seen like, oh. Like look at happens to whatever sleep recovery score, you know, after I drank too many beers or had too many drinks, like it plummets. So I should be aware of that. And I think that's one place where, you know, tech for the lay person, like bringing some awareness has been hugely beneficial because that's all it is. It's the awareness and trade off and making sure that you know you're okay with the trade off that that you have, and there's nothing wrong with understanding that. We do lots of stuff that isn't optimal, and none of us are going to be perfect, and that's totally fine.
0: Yeah, well, I hope that this was helpful in clearing up some of these fancy health trends. Um, I also hope that even though we only talked about cold plunge, coffee, and alcohol, that we gave you a framework and a pattern for how to evaluate these because new ones are going to come up every day. Just this morning on my phone popped up a podcast alert all about water and filtering water and pH levels and fluoride and Steve shaking his head across from me and all this stuff that is just the definition of junk science. And um, yeah, People are gonna probably go nuts over water. It's always gotta be something. And you know what? For some limited applications, it probably is really important to like purify your water and to balance pH levels or what what have you. I don't know what they are, you know, but I sure I'd buy it. People with very certain specific disorders that are super sensitive to fluoride might wanna have non-fluoride water or whatever. But there's like hundreds of years of epidemiology not hundreds, but a 100 years of epidemiology on these kinds of public health issues, and there's these huge studies. So when we come across things with a sample size of 15 and unmatched controls and something else we didn't talk about, p-values, right around 0.05, which in non-science speak means that you can kind of be skeptical that the researchers just ran a bunch of regressions until they found one that spit out something a little bit better than 0.05, you got to be a little bit skeptical. And um, generally speaking, small single studies are not worth paying too much attention to, particularly if the person promoting them is doing it and also selling a product or supplement, trying to do it as a peacocking show of toughness or discipline or moral superiority, or for any other reason. The people who are cold plunging simply because they like it and don't feel the need to post it on Instagram every day, my guess is those are the happiest people cold plunging out there. So keep doing it, you know. But you um, but if uh, you're not, but if you're not, and you see all these people, all these bros, because they tend to be dudes
1: on Instagram doing this, then don't feel like you're missing out on anything. You're, you're, you know. You're not. I should say this, and maybe this is the conclusion: is would you still feel the same if you weren't posting on instagram or twitter or facebook you know and that that really it is like so i'll bring it back to my own like i gave up or stopped eating fast food and didn't drink alcohol or whatever because i thought it would have an impact on my performance something that i cared about i didn't do it so that i could go on you know go on and brag about it in, in cloud and maybe that's like the defining characteristic is it, if it matters to you and this is then you know, you probably do it, you know, with athletes who felt better with ice baths. Like they weren't taking pictures of themselves in the ice baths. They were like, I'm going to suffer through this so that I can, you know, perform better on the second day of my decathlon or whatever crazy thing they were doing, you know? Yeah. So- and,
0: and I have friends and I have friends that are, um, they're in AA and, and while I've had all sorts of other challenges as we all have, fortunately I, I didn't get the um, the addiction mutation, or at least I haven't experienced it yet. So I don't know this. I have no problem enjoying a drink, but I've got friends in AA, and you know what they tell me, which pisses them off about this, this sobriety bullshit. It completely goes against AA, which is like, don't do stuff for status. Like, don't don't talk about what happens in AA meetings. Like, once you start bragging, and listen, I need to step back here if you are someone who struggled with addiction and the way that you stay clean is by talking about it on Twitter every day, great. I'd much rather you be talking about not drinking on Twitter than struggling from addiction. However, a lot of these people that are leading this cut alcohol movement, they're not in recovery. They're not in AA. They're looking for followers so they can sell you stuff. Because most people in AA would say the same thing, which is like, you don't want to seek status based on your sobriety. Like, you don't want to make this more crucial to your identity than it needs to be. This is a disease. You're treating the disease in a community, and that's it. So it's fascinating. I open with Macklemore. Maybe I'll close with Macklemore. My man Macklemore, Struggles from Addiction. Some beautiful songs on his album about addiction, about relapsing, about trying to stay clean. You know who's not posting about staying sober because it makes him more creative or a better person on Instagram every day? Macklemore. So be more like Macklemore across all this stuff. If you ever catch me posting my squats, telling you that you got to wake up and squat, God forbid, at 4.30 in the morning, then you'll know that I've
1: lost my mind on the internet. and trying not to do that, my friends. All right, there you go. Don't lose your mind on the internet. Thanks for listening. Check out our stuff. Visit our Patreon. You know... Help us keep this podcast going because we're not getting any sp- sponsors for fancy stuff. Because then we couldn't have these conversations. Are you so, kidding?
0: We are, we are blacklisted <laughs> on every single freaking supplement slash wearable device slash anything technology in probably eight out of the ten most popular quote unquote health podcast out there, Steve. So we, we we don't have to worry about that. But um. We do appreciate all your support because it's a small community of people that care about this stuff and that are willing to do it the right way, to walk the path of sustainable excellence, of toughness, of progress in a way that really focuses on nailing the fundamentals that doesn't look for shortcuts. And um, there's more of us than you might think. Uh, I was recently on Luca Hossover's podcast. He's a strength coach out in Seattle. He's doing it the right way. He's building a big following, doing it the right way. Um. Yeah, I'm kind of drawing a blank. So maybe not that many more. Stu McMillan, who we had in his podcast, he's doing it the right way. So there's there, there's people out there. We just got to find them and, and and keep growing this community. Um, because there's there's a lot of noise and the noise is loud. And uh, more and more people are going to be asking Chat GPT three for their health programs, and it'll all just be the same commoditized stuff.